Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 3. And we had a real fun time talking about this a couple weeks ago as we begin to talk about the law of God. This is one of the more misunderstood subjects, I think, among Christians is what, what role does the law play today? Should we still be following the law? Are there parts of the law that we should be following, not following? Uh, really what I'm doing today is just presenting to you the simplicity of the gospel, but just from a little bit different angle. The law of God, as we discussed, it refers to, well, when you read the word law in the New Testament, it could have different meanings, all right? So if it says the law, it could just mean the first five books of the Bible. When it says the law, it could specifically mean the law, the Levitical law given to Moses. Or sometimes Jesus would say the law and the prophets, and that referred to the entire Old Testament. Um, but by and large, when you look back at the Old Testament, you're looking at, you're looking at a time period that is called under the law. So in the Old Testament... Humanity was under the law, but in the New Testament, it says we're no longer under the law. We're now under something different. He says now we're under grace. And those two things are very different. And that's the whole, once you understand it, then you understand it's the whole reason why Jesus came to die. Was so that we would no longer be under the law, but now we would be under grace. We were in a time period of law, and then now we're in a period of grace. But what I've noticed with Christians and even with myself is that sometimes you can still have under the law thinking, even though you're now in a time of grace. So we're under grace, but when you read the Bible and you read through the Old Testament, you can still have a law mentality. And this comes from also that we live in a world that's under the law. The, you know, in the kingdom of God, we're under grace, but in real life, we're under law, meaning we, uh, we, we have laws that govern our nation, our society. You follow those laws, you do well. You break those laws, you do bad, right? You follow those laws, you, you get rewarded. You break those laws, you get punished. You can have your freedoms taken away from you because you broke one law. So our society is governed by law. We live under law. We think like that. Even growing up in our homes, sometimes it can be like that. There's not a lot of grace. You know, there's law in the home. You break this, you get that. And those consequences, all that's important. We can get to that in family matters. However, salvation doesn't come by following the law. This is, this is hard for our law brains to break free from. Getting made right with God. Receiving salvation as a gift does not come from following the law. Not any longer. Now, salvation is a gift that comes by grace. Amen? So we talked about the fact that there's nothing wrong with the law. Actually, the law is good. The Bible says that the law is perfect. Nothing wrong with the law. God created the law. God wrote the law. There's plenty of, of the law that we still follow. Even in the New Testament, there's law. We talked about how the law is actually designed to be a mirror, all right? And if you go this morning, hopefully when you got up, you looked in the mirror and you got a revelation about your condition, right? You rolled out of bed, you got your coffee, and you thought, man, I'm feeling good today. It's a good day. And then you looked in the mirror and you said, whoo, got a revelation real fast about your condition. That's, a mirror does that, right? A mirror says you're in bad shape. 
Okay? Mirror says you put on a few pounds. Mirror says you don't have as much hair as you used to. You know, Mirror usually has bad news for a lot of us, you know, except those few of us that just have everything just right. That's not me, though, but, or many of us. But you look in the mirror, and it reveals your condition, but how many of you know it cannot change your condition? Okay, if you look in the mirror, you get a revelation about your condition, but the mirror can't comb your hair. The mirror can't brush your teeth. The mirror can't make you lose weight. All the mirror can do is show you your condition. It's a great uh, revealer of your condition. It has no power to change your condition. This is the example that Paul uses in the New Testament. He says the law is a mirror. The law shows you the state of humanity. It shows you your sinfulness. It shows you how bad things really are. And you go, man, who, what, does God really want to show me how bad I am? I mean, what kind of God is that? He wants to like show me all my flaws and everything that's wrong with me? Yeah, because just like that mirror, if you didn't have a mirror in your house, there's no telling how you'd go out looking in the world. The mirror is not hateful. The mirror is actually loving. The mirror is actually coming along uh, just saying, hey, you got a problem. You need to take care of it. The mirror is loving. So the, the law of God, the purpose of the law of God is to show you, to give you a powerful revelation of the condition of man. You ever met a person that you tried to, maybe you've heard this, uh, you, you try to tell a person about the gospel and they say, well, I understand what you're saying. Jesus came to die for a sinner, but I'm really not a sinner. I haven't done anything wrong. You know, I've lived a pretty good life. I try to help people. I really haven't done anything wrong. Yet, you haven't looked in the mirror. That's your problem. The law shows people who are blinded to their condition. The law reveals your condition before God. And if you start taking people through the law and you say, well, did you know the Bible says uh, that, that, all, that no liar will enter the kingdom of God? You ever told a lie before? Well, I mean, I've told a few little, not just takes one. Just takes one to be a lawbreaker. It just takes one to be a liar. What about, and then you go down the list. What about stealing? What about coveting? What about adultery? Then in the New Testament, you find out actually committing adultery is not the, the thing. Actually, you could do these things in your heart. Oh, you don't just murder out. It's not just you murder someone. He says you can murder someone in your heart. It's the same thing. It's counted against you the same as if you did it, if you have hate in your heart. So you begin to show a person, you take them through the law, and all of a sudden they start feeling beat down, and they feel broke down. And you can't feel bad about that. That's what the law is supposed to do. And see, people come to church, and they don't like that. They don't like that feeling. Man, I feel condemned. I feel broke down. I feel like the pastor was hitting me with the Bible. You know, he's telling me everything wrong in my life. Well, there is a place for that because that's what the law does. That's what a mirror does. It shows you your condition, but it doesn't leave you there. It shows you how bad things really are. But here's the thing. You don't want the remedy. You don't want the cure unless you know how bad the disease is. You know, if you go to the doctor, part of the role of a physician, again, is to help you see how bad things really are. And physicians, you know, they get creative with this. Uh, there's lots of things they can do. And sometimes they come across as harsh. They're like, no, you don't understand. You're going to die if you don't do this. If you don't start eating right, exercising, if you don't quit smoking, and they go through and they're saying, if this is your life in five years. What are they doing? They're trying to shake you out of your, your apathy and shake you out of your stupor because you haven't really had a revelation yet of your condition. So sometimes the things they'll do is they'll run tests. See, you could have like a nagging pain, let's say, in your hip. Some of y'all said, amen, praise God, I know all about that. You could have like a nagging pain in your hip, but it's not that big a deal. 
in your mind. It's not that big a deal. It hurts a little. I mean, I, you know, I limp a little, but I get along pretty good. Just shake it out every now and then, stretch some. You know, it's not really that bad. Then you go to the doctor, and they take an x-ray. And they go, oh, wait a minute. You're not seeing the whole picture. You didn't realize that this joint is deteriorating, and it's already like pre-arthritic. And, you know, if, this can, if we don't do anything for the next few years, you're going to have to have a hip replacement. And then, then you start going, oh, God, man, I was feeling great before I came and talked to you. Well, you didn't have the whole picture. You were feeling great because you were actually blinded to the facts. You actually were in darkness. You didn't have the full revelation. And then, heaven help us if you go and they come and there's something worse than that. You go and you had a little pain in the hip and they go, oh, actually you have a tumor in your hip. And if we don't treat this, this is where it's going to go. And the day before, you felt fantastic until you got a revelation about the reality of your condition. And that's what the law does. The law, that's the purpose of the law. The law is an x-ray machine. It is an MRI. It shows you how sinful, dirty, broken, incapable of holiness, incapable of righteousness you really are. And, and I know some people don't like that. They're like, that's not, I don't want to know about that. I don't want to feel about that. Well, that's where we start so that you acknowledge and realize and see your brokenness and see your sinfulness and see your inability to please God. And then you realize the answer. You get to the New Testament and you find out, I can't live righteously before God. I can't follow all the, the standards perfectly. But praise God that Jesus Christ is the answer and the solution and that he died in my place so that I could be made right with God and receive my salvation and my righteousness as a gift. But that's the purpose of the law, is to show us our condition. Have you ever tried to get somebody to see something that uh, everyone else could see in their life but they can't see? I get to do that a lot in my role. It's fun to try to get somebody to see something that everyone else in their life can see, but they can't see. They're blinded to it. If you have kids, you have to do this a lot. This is one of the, the, tick, the tactics that I used with my kids when they were young. They kind of know all my tactics now, so they don't work as well. But early on, you know, I, I, I would, if they were, say they were arguing over something and, you know, one of my kids was saying, well, this is fair, you know, this is fair, this is how I want to do it, and it's totally fair. And I would ask them, I'd say, you think that's fair? Yeah, it's totally fair. This is the fair way to do this. And I'd say, okay, if it's totally fair, then we're going to reverse it. We're going to do exactly what you were wanting to be for your sister. Oh, I see, I gave away who it was. <laughs> We're going to do exactly what you wanted to do for your sibling. We're going to do it to you, and then we're going to let them have what you wanted for yourself. If it's totally fair, then the revelation comes. It wasn't fair. If it was fair, you wouldn't care if we reversed it. I'm showing you it's not fair because when we reverse it, now you're mad. So you have to, do, you have, to have little taxes to get people to see things that they can't see. And here's the reality. Your sin nature by itself keeps you from seeing your actual condition. The fact of a, of a broken sin nature, we have a tendency to see ourselves in a certain light, and we really can't see our condition without the help of the Holy Spirit. Can I just tell you, you're way worse off than you realize? Even, even in your saved condition. Even in your saved condition. Even as a, as a born-again, saved believer, you're never, ever going to measure up to God's standard of righteousness in your own strength, ever. 
Any, you, take, you take a monk that's living in a monastery and he's isolated himself in a room for 20 days, he's still got to deal with this mind up here. And the Bible is very, very clear that there's lots of sins of the mind and the heart. And unfortunately, no, no one will ever live up to the standard of God's law. And even when uh, mankind had started to think like the Pharisees of, oh, we're living up to God's law and we're doing this perfect. And Jesus came along and he said, let me just show you how far off you really are. Because all y'all ever focused on was the outside of the cup. But let me show you that the inside of the cup has to be clean too. And he began to show them all the ways they were falling short of the law. That's a lot of Jesus' ministry. If you read his sermons and you don't understand what he's doing, a lot of Jesus' sermons were pointing out the, the futility of trying to live by the law. This is why when Jesus talks about he says, oh, when you, and when you pray, he said, go do, it in, go do it in secret. Go do it where nobody sees. What's he doing? He's showing the Pharisees, you're not doing that. Oh, you think you're doing good because you're giving generously? He said, no, you're doing it in front of people to get the praise of man, and that's the only reward you're actually going to get. He said, if you were truly following the law, this is how you would pray. This is how you would fast. This is how you would give. And he goes on and on, and he's continually showing people you're so far from meeting the expectation of the law. And again, that comes across as mean. It comes across as condemning. It comes across as hurtful until you realize what he's doing. He's saying, there's another way, but you don't, you're not even going to want this way until you realize how bad off you are. And that was the purpose of the law. Basically, the law is 4,000 years of evidence that mankind is broken and sinful and needs a Savior. When you read through the Old Testament, you're reading through 4,000 years of man trying to live righteous according to God's standard in his own strength. You're, you're, you're reading about the Israelites over and over again, seeing God on the mountain, seeing his glory, still can't follow. Seeing the glory on Moses and going up on Mount Sinai and coming down with Ten Commandments has been carved by the finger of God in the rock. Up, oh, get down. Well, they built a golden calf, rejected God. Went away from it over and over again. Look, even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, our heroes are bad. <laughs> David, King David, murdered Uriah, committed adultery, Bathsheba. Abraham lied about, about Sarah being his sister, you know, put her in harm's way to save himself. You know, Ishmael, do I need to go on? Just all our heroes in the Old Testament, the ones that are lifted up as, man, these were the men of God. They still were not righteous according to God's standard. So the law is 4,000 years of evidence that mankind is broken, sinful, needs a savior, a savior. When you read through the book of Exodus, if you ever sit down and read through the book of Exodus like in a very short amount of time, it'll blow your mind. You, you will just be shaking your head going, how can these people continue to reject God, rebel against God, turn away from God? It's almost as if they're incapable of doing and choosing what is right. But salvation does not come by the law. It comes by faith. I ask you to turn to Romans chapter 3 verse 20. Let's look there. Now what we're talking about this morning may seem, to some of you, it may seem very basic because it is kind of a foundational thing of the, the gospel. But you need to understand that your, your whole salvation and your, your, the way that you approach God is built on what we're talking about this morning. And 
every believer has a different understanding and a different revelation of this truth that we're about to talk about. And depending on your revelation of what we're going to talk about, it affects how you approach God. It affects everything. It affects how you approach God. It affects how you worship. Listen, if you have a very low understanding of what we're about to talk about, you're probably not a worshiper. You probably don't enjoy worshiping. Someone who understands what we're about to talk, you can't hardly keep them from worshiping because this revelation is so good and so great about who God is and what he did for us. And, it, and if your revelation of that is very low, you, you don't, you don't fall, you're not mesmerized by worship. And so it's important that we continue to grow in our revelation of this because it affects how we approach God. It also affects how we approach others. If I see, if I look at you and I see your fault and your sin and your problems and all of your shortcomings and I'm very judgmental towards you, I don't have a good revelation of this. And, and the more a person understands this revelation that we're about to talk about in Romans chapter 3, actually the more gracious, kind, and merciful they are to other people. Because you understand that actually we're all in the same boat. Even those of us who are really, really holy and right according to human standards, we're actually all in the same boat needing a Savior. There's not one of us that's ever obtained righteousness on our own. Romans 3.20. Pay very close attention to these words because um, they're so good that they're almost hard to believe. Look what he says. Well, before I read it. I know I'm doing a lot of explanation this morning. This is why I didn't get through this series yet, because there's so much to talk about, okay? Let, let me say this about Paul. In the Old Testament, you get a revelation of the cross, actually. You, you, even, you know, they, looking back, um, the New Testament tells us that Jesus was in the Old Testament. And once you understand, you, once you read the New Testament, you have the, the story of the cross, and you get all that, then you can go back and read the Old Testament, and you can say, oh, I see Jesus there. Oh, I see the cross there. In other words, it was always pointing to the cross. The Old Testament talks about the cross from a prophetic standpoint, meaning this is what's coming, this is what is going to, but it was very, it was veiled. It's very nuanced. No one fully under... If you only had the Old Testament, you really wouldn't understand the cross very well. You, you knew there was a, a Savior, a Messiah coming, but it was very veiled. You didn't completely understand his purpose and all that he would accomplish. Then, in the, in the Gospels, you get almost like a historical account of the resurrection, the cross, what happened. But, but you don't really get the revelation. You don't get the behind-the-scenes you don't get what's under the hood of the cross and the gospel until you get to Paul. See, when you get to Paul, so if a person from the Old Testament and from the gospels, if they just understood the cross from that, they would have a very kind of plain, vanilla, just facts, history, you know, mindset. But when you get to Paul, Paul has, God just opened up the hood for Paul and he said, let me show you how this thing works. And he gave, him, he gave him all the revelation that no one... We would have never known what I'm about to read to you without Paul's revelation. We never would have fully understood the cross and what happened at the cross. Because most of what happened on the cross could not be observed with the human eye. It was what was happening behind the scenes. It was what was going on in the spiritual realm. That was the most par powerful part of the cross. See, when 
even, even today, many Christians' revelation of the cross is very, very physical, right? We, in our homes, or maybe we have crosses, we have the nails, we have the paintings of Jesus on the cross. That's not the most powerful part of the cross. That's what you could see in the natural. The, the most powerful part of the cross is what was happening in the supernatural, what was going on behind the scenes. See, there was a debt, there was a, there was a legal system that was being handled. There were, there were debts that were owed that you couldn't see on the cross. There were judgment that was happening. There was the wrath of God that was involved. There were penalties that were being paid. There was atonement. There was redemption. There was all these things that were happening behind the scenes that you couldn't see with your physical eye. So an eyewitness account is not going to suffice in explaining what happened on the cross. That's why we have the whole Bible. Praise God for the Gospels. They tell us the eyewitness accounts, but they don't tell us what was going on underneath the hood. And that's where Paul comes. And in Revelation 3.20, this is what he says. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's what I've been explaining to you already. I'm not going to rehash that. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. But I do want to point out this one word. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. What do you need to be justified in another person's sight? If, if you wronged me or harmed me or you, you did something horrible to me or my family or someone and you come to me, what do you do? You begin to justify your actions. You begin to explain. You begin to give a reason for your, your actions. And most of the time, we know excuses never work, right? Somebody comes, this is why I did it, this is why, this is why. And it's like you're not justified in my sight. You wronged me, you hurt me, you did this. And no matter what your excuse was, you actually were not justified for that. And that's the verdict. So he says, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Meaning no human being will come to him and say, but God, I gave this. I did this, I lived this way, I tried to be friendly, I tried to help other people, I tried to go, listen... You're not going to be justified like that. No human being, no monk, not Mother Teresa, not the most perfect. No one can stand before God and find justification in their own self, in the sight of God. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, look at this verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Okay, we're going we're gonna to camp out here for just a minute. And I actually have an illustration I want to show you all this morning because I want to, it's, it, to really get you to see this. I want to really help you understand this. So if we can, we'll get that ready. But while they prepare that, notice this phrase, the righteousness of God. Okay, what is the righteousness of God? Well, first of all, let's talk about what righteousness is. Okay, righteousness, let's break the word down, just the English word. Righteousness is broken up into two words. First one being right or correct. And second one being the E-O-U-S part, which sounds really weird when you say it apart from another word. So I'm not going to try to say it. E-O-S or whatever. So right means, hold on, I'm very distracted right now. We're going to finish getting this up here first. <laughs> Then I'm going to start babbling and say things that aren't right. So, All right, we got this. Thank you, guys. Perfect. Okay. So 
Let's look at the word righteous because Paul says the righteousness of God has been manifested through Christ. And that's one of those phrases to me. There's certain phrases you read in the Bible where your brain kind of goes to mush and you're like, All right, what, I don't, what are you saying? What are you? Okay, so the righteousness of God, the correctness of God, the, the standard of God has been manifested apart or separate from the law. And this is what man was after, right? Trying to be made righteous with God by following the law. He says, nope, now righteousness has been, has been manifested apart from that system, apart from the law system. Let's talk about God's righteousness. Here's what the word uh, righteous means. And again, we're kind of breaking it up into two parts. Right means correct and in conformity to a standard. And the suffix means full of or fully. So it literally means to be full of, completely full of correctness or rightness. To be 100% right. To be perfectly right. And I like the second part of the definition. To be correct and in conformity to a standard. God is that standard. God is the perfect standard. And our jobs... In order to get into heaven, you have to be perfectly in conformity to that standard. That's how it works. In order to be righteous, you have to be perfectly in conformity to God's standard or else you're not righteous. If you miss it by any, any amount, then you're not righteous before God. Well, for centuries, for thousands of years, man tried to be made right with God. They tried to get into conformity with God. Uh, through works of the law. And they kept falling short, and they kept falling short, and they kept falling short. They could never obtain that level of, of righteousness. But, the, but what Paul is revealing is, God, through Jesus, made a way that you could be transformed into perfect conformity to God's righteousness apart from works of the law. Okay, now I have a very simple illustration here. I'm going to warn you, if, if you hadn't already figured it out, this is a key maker. And uh, I've never used one of these before, except only a few minutes before service. So I can't promise how this is going to go. If I lose a finger, maybe we have a doctor in here. Uh, and I've got a few little things here. Now, uh, let's see. I've got a master key, and I've got some blank Blank keys here. All right, so this is, the, this is the master key. You can see, obviously, it works the lock just fine. So this is, this is the standard. I want you, in your mind, I want you to imagine that this is the righteousness of God. When I, when I look at this, this perfectly fits the lock, and it is the righteousness of God. Now, this blank key is you. And what the law did was it says, okay, here's the standard. The law gave you the standard. And it said, if you want access to this, you have to be in perfect conformity to this. And so people under the law, this is what they did. They had this key and they said, okay, let me look at this. All right, I'm going to look at this. All right, it's got that little groove there. So... I want to file this down. That's looking pretty good. Okay, we'll make a change there. Oh, I see that God's like this. Well, I'm not like that. Let me, I'm going to try to 
change that. All right. Not bad. Getting close. Okay. And so I just keep working and I'm following the law and I'm doing the law and I'm coming about pretty good. I mean, to me, it's got the ridges and it looks a lot real similar to that. Okay. Let's try it out. Nope, not there yet. Now I go back and I look at the law and I keep at it. And I follow the law and I try to work on the law. You see what I'm doing here? It doesn't matter how long I file this key. I'm never getting here. Not me. <laughs> I'm never getting here. You know why? Because my friend... Uh, Mr. Nick Vincent, which, by the way, all this is from Mr. Nick Vincent. He owns A1 Key and Lock. Thank you, Mr. Nick. Appreciate you for your help this morning. Yeah, you give him a hand. I mean, he's... So he helped me out. And he told me that... Actually, this all started earlier in the... I think last week. And see, when you're a pastor, you can't stop your brain from thinking this way. I was walking down the hall, and Nick was working on some locks up here. And I heard him say to Bill... He said, well, I changed it one one-thousandth of an inch. And he said, and that's a lot. And I was like, one one-thousandth of an inch is a lot? I just thought that to myself, and I began to realize what he was saying. If this is off by one one-thousandth of an inch, it will not work in this lock. And I was like, that's a sermon. And I just started thinking. <laughs> that's how I can't stop myself from thinking that way. But... That's right. If it's off by one one-thousandth of an inch, it's never going to work. So guess what? You can take this little file, and you can file all day that you want, and you can keep looking at the law of the righteous standard of God. You can keep looking at it, and you can keep working, and you're always going to fall short, and you're always going to feel disappointed, and you're never going to get there, and you can have spent your whole life trying to conform to this, and you're still going to arrive on judgment day, and it's not going to work because no one, as Paul said, no one will be justified through the works of the law. No one will be justified in God's sight by works of the law. In other words, you're never getting there. Not that way. Praise God, there's another way. Now, y'all know what I'm about to do. Y'all already know what this is going to happen here. This is, the, this is the standard, and this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did for us. He took... The righteousness of God. And he gifted it to us. And the way this little machine works is it takes the imprint that is on the perfect key. And it applies it to the blank key. That's how it works. Now, y'all going to have to bear with me because I'm not real good at this. And I may even have to call Nick up here, but... No, I'm just kidding, Nick. I'm doing fine. Don't worry about it. It'll be just a minute. Okay. Let's see if I remember everything he said to do. Okay, we're going to turn that on. All right. I think we got it. So close. Hold on just a minute. There we go. Now I'm good. Nick, don't make me call you up here now. I know you're trying to stay off the stage, but I'm having one little problem with this 
There we go. Got it. Okay. So we've got the perfect key on the left side. And he takes you. Now see, this little key's not doing any work. It's just sitting there getting changed. Getting that, that righteousness conformed to it. Conforming to that perfect standard. And now Nick told me that when he came out here, that uh, I had to do this part too. I guess that's like baptism, you know, getting the rough edges off or something like that, you know. And so you have now, you have the, the master key and you have the blank key and now those are imperfect conformity. And these now, so this is like the righteousness of God and how this works is th this master key can con confer its perfection onto these other, <clears throat> these other keys and now it works. Just right. So, this is how we have to think about it in our brains. Look, your, your old law brain is going to go back to this over and over again. Your old law brain is going to, and Satan works at it too, because the Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren. And he constantly wants to remind you of your shortcomings and your failures and how you never measure up. And, and again, if you read the Bible wrong, that's what it is for you. It's a standard that you can't ever meet. If you read the Bible wrong, you read the Bible and you go, man, I, I can't meet that. I'm never falling. I'm always falling short and I'm, I'm never doing, you know, things right. Yeah, but that's not how righteousness comes. Righteousness comes by faith. Now, in the book of Galatians, Paul is very clear that this is crucially important. We just leave this up here. We're going to stay up here. But Paul is very clear that even for Christians, this is very, very important that they still live every day by faith. You know when the Bible says that the just shall live by faith? It's talking about daily. The just shall live every day by faith in the Son of God, who he is, what he did, because the tendency for Christians is still to fall back into law thinking. Whether that be from self-condemnation through Satan accusing you, the tendency is always to go back to, okay, I got to work, I got to get, because it's so hard for our brains to believe that it is a gift from God. That's why I've got to read so many scriptures to you to get it in your brain, because it's just our old law brain is so hard to, uh, to think about this. Now, I want to read you a few scriptures on it, but before I do, I want you to think about this. If that's how righteousness works, okay, law could never get there. Grace is the gift of righteousness, gift, free gift, received by faith. What is self-righteousness then? Okay, what is self-righteousness? Because this, to me, this is so, this is so important. Because self-righteousness is, if you can't see, this is a little key that I was filing in the beginning that actually doesn't look anything like the original. But this is what self-righteousness, this is how self-righteousness appears in a person's life. I've been working hard on my key getting it filed just right, doing all these little changes and getting it all pretty. And then I come across somebody else. This is a blank key. I know it's hard to see. 
I come across somebody else who hasn't done as much work as I have, and now I'm the standard. See, that's what self-righteousness is. It's not, it's not looking at yourself according to God's standard and looking at all of humanity according to God's standard and realizing that we all fall, fall short. Self-righteousness is when you become the standard. And now you look at someone who is lower than you and you go, man, look how much better I am than you. Look how many more little indentions I have than you. Look how many little more grooves that I have for you. It's pretty obvious that I've been working on myself and you haven't been working on yourself very much at all. And that's what self-righteousness does. It makes, that's why it's called self-righteousness. It's not God-righteousness where he's the standard. It's self-righteousness meaning now I'm better than you are. I'm the standard. And if you look more like me than you would be, and that's what the Pharisees did, and that's what Jesus hit on them so hard for, is that they were always self-righteous. But you can't be self-righteous when you understand the righteousness of God. Because when you understand the righteousness of God, you realize, I fall short, you fall short, no one's ever hit the mark. David fall, fell short. Abraham fell short. They all fell short of that perfection, that perfected righteousness of God. So no, every human being ever to walk the face of the planet is, are all in the same boat. And we all need a Savior for righteousness. Okay, I might need a Savior a lot, and you might need a Savior a little, but we all still need a Savior. And that is so important to understand. And this is what Paul, this is how all of Paul's revelation is. All of Paul's revelation is you have to live by that faith every day. Paul said, I live by the faith in the Son of God every day. I live by that faith every day. In other words, I wake up and I feel bad. I feel guilty. I feel condemned. I feel depressed. What do I do? I activate my faith. And I go, feeling? No, feeling irrelevant. My faith is in the righteousness of God that was gifted to me through the cross. So I'm not going to walk around. This is why, listen, if you, I know some of y'all grew up in churches where you heard this. Well, we're just all dirty old sinners before God. Please don't ever say that around me. To do that is to disrespect what happened on the cross. If you look at yourself... Well, we're just all dirty old sinners before God. And I totally understand there's an ele element of that that's true. Because what they're trying to say is, is you know, we, we all are sinners and we all need a Savior. I get that. But you know what? That's not how God looks at you. God doesn't walk around looking at you every day as a, yep, you were just, before you knew me, you were just a dirty old sinner. Can't do no wrong. No, he, the Bible says now, through faith in the Son of God, he looks at you as the righteousness of God. He, in other words, you have that same key, the, the righteousness of God, that standard. He, that's how he sees you. He sees you as righteous before him, meaning there's nothing more that you can add to it. Nothing more you can do to make yourself more righteous. Another way some people say it is you're as righteous today as you're ever going to be because you don't improve your righteousness with works. You can't add to it. You can't add to your righteous works. And some people think, well, you know, when we get to heaven, then we'll be perfectly righteous. That's not true. When you get to heaven, you'll be perfectly holy. There's a difference. 
See, holiness, the Bible doesn't say that you were made holy or gifted holiness. You were gifted righteousness, which is a status. This is the difference that we've got to make in our minds. Being righteous does not mean that you are perfectly holy. Being righteous means that you have a status of right standing before God, that you have no debt, you have no penalty, it's all been paid, it's all been wiped away. Just like if you went to court and your record was expunged, and so now when they look at your record, you have no record. Well, we know in reality you have a record. We know in reality you committed that crime, you stole that, you killed that person, you did. We know in reality there's a record, but according to the law, there's no record. In other words, you have a status of being pardoned. Your record's been expunged. It's a gift that was given to you. Do you, do you actually, does that mean you walk in perfection or that your past life was perfect? No, it does not. In reality, it's still there. But your, your status is not guilty. Your status is clean. Your status is righteous before God. And that's the difference that you have to make. See, Christians think, well, because I sin, I'm no longer righteous. Wrong. When you, when you sin, you're not unrighteous before God. When you sin, you still have a status of righteousness before God, but that sin has the capacity to hurt you, damage you, draw you away from God over time, harden your heart. Yeah, there's lots of problems that come along with sin, and by persisting in it, it can cause you a lot of problems. We could talk about where that can take you. However, when a Christian makes a mistake or sins, their status of being righteous before God does not change. And see, I've said that to people, and some people act like that's a problem. It shows how little they actually understand what happened. Listen, if every time you sin, you're no longer righteous before God, then we might as well just stay in the Old Testament. Sometimes I think people's understanding of grace is so poor that it would almost have been better for them to just live in the Old Testament where they could sacrifice a goat and lamb and, and get blood to pay for their sin and, and that whole system of getting righteous before God. If, if that's what it is, we might as well just stay in the Old Testament. No. How many of you know that the gospel of grace is better? The New Testament is better. The reason the system was changed is because the new one is better. Praise God. So, grace is a gift. Some of you are looking at me, and that means you need a lot of Scripture. So I'm going to give it to you. Verse 21 we read, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All, everybody say all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. I love the phrasing that he uses, so important. Notice he doesn't say, for all have sinned and fell short. Yes, we know fail in the past, but he said all have sinned and fall short, meaning present or future of the glory of God, and are justified, not were justified, not we were justified. No, we, we are justified and continually justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for his, by his blood. Now, if you want to really understand the gospel, you've got to understand some of these terms that they use. Propitiation is a payment or an appeasement. 
In other words, uh, when I was a kid, I watched this movie called Joe and the Volcano. It had the Tom Hanks movie. I don't even remember much about it. I just remember somebody had to be thrown in the volcano to appease the wrath of the gods. You know, and this is a common concept. There are still tribes that do this today. Every year, they, you know, someone has to walk off a cliff or throw off a cliff or they cut themselves or they stab themselves. They're trying to appease the wrath of a god. And it's, it's, it's an appeasement that has to be usually offered so many times a year or once a year or annually. It's, 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 it's an appeasement over and over and over. And if you don't offer it to the god, then he remains angry and, he, and bad things are going to happen. He uses that word for Christ, but the difference with Christ is we find out that it was a, a sacrifice that was offered once and for all time, never to be offered again. It was the perfect payment for your sin that never had to be offered again. Did you know? And so when you when you try to appease God through your good works, oh well, I did something wrong. Well, now now I got to go give you know some money where I got to go serve somebody or I got I got to try to pray more or read my Bible more. Now what are you doing? You're trying to offer a propitiation to God for your own sins, which you can't do. Listen, if you sin one one day and in the next week, every single day, you do nothing but good deeds, did you know it's not a propitiation for that sin? Why? Because by works of the law, no man will be justified before God. And what you find out from the New Testament is, is that even the good works that you thought you were doing in the next week are actually tainted with sin. So you can't make a propitiation to God. Some believers still live like they could make a propitiation to God. Jesus was your propitiation. You don't need to continually re-offer appeasements to God so that he accepts you and that he loves you. Listen, if you have faith in the blood of Jesus Christ for your salvation, no wrath remains on your life. You are right before God. Okay? So whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness as the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. I'm going to go through these really fast because we're running out of time. Galatians 2.15, you can write them down and you know, read them later on your own time. Kind of study them out. Galatians 2.15, Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet... We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You think, well, I think I heard that before. Yeah, but he's saying it again. This is, different. This is a whole different book. Different book, different chapter, different audience. He's saying it again, letting them know. His point there is he's talking to Jews that are used to being made right by the law. And he says, look, even us as Jews, we still have to have faith in God. That's how we're justified. I love verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, his implication to the Galatians here, which is what the whole point of the book was, his implication to the Galatians is, is that if you go back to trying to be made right with God through works instead of grace, you actually nullify the grace of God. And if you do that, he said, then Christ died for no purpose. The whole purpose was that your works could not justify you. Okay, final example and we're done. Luke 23, 39. Final just example of this. This is... This is 
such a cl- I'm so glad that God included this example in Scripture because it wins so many arguments when you're discussing this with people. This one example right here. This is the thief on the cross. You, you know the story. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice what he said. Just look, look how simple this phraseology. He didn't say a sinner's prayer. He didn't lay on his face and repent for hours. He, di- he didn't read the whole New Testament first. He didn't have every element of the gospel explained to him first. It's very simple. He wasn't baptized. He didn't speak in tongues. He's just there on the cross. And he said this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This whole conversation between the thief and Jesus probably was less than 30 seconds. It's 30 seconds. Why? Well, because it was a lot more about what was going on in his heart than what was coming out of his mouth. He was looking at Jesus, and he believed that he was the Son of God, and that was all it took. In that moment, he received the righteousness of God. And Jesus looked at him, and he said, that's all it takes. But I lived a whole life where all I did was sin, and I was a thief, and I broke laws, and I'm now being crucified for it, and my whole life was a waste, and I spent everything away. He said, yeah, but the last 30 seconds changed everything. (laughs) The last 30 seconds changed everything. Because even if you had lived a a quote-unquote perfect life, you would still need a Savior at this moment. Because it it wouldn't have been perfect. And your righteousness is actually a lot more off the mark than you realize. So right there in that moment, in the matter of 30 seconds, the man put his faith in Jesus, and he received salvation. And this is why... I think as believers, we have to be so careful when we try to judge other people's salvation. Well, if they were saved, they wouldn't be acting like that. You might be right. You might be right. I mean, I, I look at people acting a certain way, and I go, man, I don't know if they're saved or not. They, they, they sure think they are, but I, I don't know if they are or not. But that's the right way to say it. I don't know if they are or not. You don't know. Because you don't know what's going on in a person's heart. And the whole idea of, well, I don't know if that person's saved or not based on their, their just, just by inspecting the, the fruit of their life, well, that's going back to the works, isn't it? In other words, what you're saying is, well, if I, if, I, if I just base it off of this, I can't tell that they're saved. Yeah, but sometimes people are a work in progress. I mean, if this, th- if this thief, let's say he hadn't died in this moment. Let's say he'd gotten saved and miraculously they'd let him go and he'd come off the cross. Guess what? He'd have a lot of work to do. Now, his whole life, his character is going to begin to change. He's going to begin to be sanctified. He's going to begin going to church. He's going to begin praying. He's going to be reading his Bible. He's going to begin to repent. He's going to begin to drop some sin off of his life. Yeah, because that's, that's part of the Christian life. But it doesn't change the fact that he was saved in the first 30 seconds. And now, the rest of our life and the rest of our time with God 
is what the Bible calls being sanctified, meaning set apart for God. Now I begin to get rid of that sin and take off of that. In five years, I'm going to look different. In five more years, I'm going to look different. In five, But my righteousness was perfect from day one. You see? The righteousness is perfect day one. The holiness, the character, all of that but is changed all along the way. And I don't care who you are. You know, I'm, I'm, I've been saved 25 years this year. I'm still changing every year. Growing, trying to improve, trying to get, get better. To earn God's righteousness? No. I've been righteous for a long time. Righteous before God. But now I want to improve in these areas, number, number one, because the, the, the natural consequences that we experience from following God's law are much better, right? You follow God's way, you're not going to end up in divorce. Your kids hate you, you lose everything. The natural consequences of following God's law are going to be a lot better for you. But I also improve because of others. There's a call of God on my life to help other people. And if I'm so caught up in sin and mess, and how am I going to help anybody around me know about this righteousness that we're talking about this morning? But see, the, the motivation of it is important. You've got to know, I'm righteous before God, and I was righteous on day one when I accepted him. And the times that I messed up and slipped away and then came back to God, I was not any more righteous on day one than I am now. The righteousness is constant. The right standing with God is constant, but my personal holiness, my faithfulness, all of that, that may ebb and flow, but the righteousness is constant before God. Why is this important? Because it affects how you approach God. And if you don't understand this, you'll go to God as a dirty, beat down, old sinner, God, you know. But no, the Bible actually tells us to come boldly to the throne room of grace because we understand our righteousness. To come boldly to God and go, here I am, God. I messed up, but praise God, you, you paid for that. I'm righteous before you. Now let's pick up and let's move on and let's get back on track and do what we need to do.